0: Hi, Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me in the revolving guest host roster, new guest host, Lonnie Gonzalez.
1: Hi, Shane. Thanks for hey. having me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Lonnie and I uh, work together at the Austin Film Society, and uh, what's the website you write for currently?
1: Well, you know, I have the my blog, which is Cinema Then and Now, um, but uh, my husband also blogs there, Uh, he does more writing there. I've also been writing for a site called book and film globe.
0: So
1: um, yeah, you can find some things from me on there lately.
0: One of my favorite stories of yours that I know you've told a thousand times (laughs) is you were a guest host on Turner classic movies.
1: I was. It was uh, (laughs) the excitement of my life.
0: (laughs) You want to talk about it?
1: Sure. No. Yeah. Um, So uh, back when the TCM had their 15th anniversary, which would have been in 2009 is when um, it all aired, uh, they invited 15 people to be fan guest programmers. And um, actually, there wasn't a contest or anything. I had actually entered a previous contest to be a (laughs) fan programmer. And because of some mix up with not getting, you know, my paperwork sent in and notarized in time, I actually couldn't be a finalist in that competition, but they were very kind enough to invite me um again when there was another opportunity so i was Do they just drop
0: the envelope inside the other container (laughs) just move it on to the next one
1: yeah well you know they were just uh, i think it was all invite only and since i had entered that previous contest they had already seen me kind of talk on camera and say how much i love turner classic movies and i love classic movies and so they invited me to be one of the 15 and uh So I got to go to Atlanta and I got to film with Robert Osborne, which was a real, you know, treat and honor. He's a wonderful man, the late Robert Osborne. Osborne, But uh, I think all classic film fans, certainly Turner Classic movie watchers have a soft spot for him. Um, And I got to film an intro with him for the movie Grand Illusion.
0: Really? Grand Illusion. What'd you have to say about that? Um, well,
1: I picked it. Like, I, we all got to sort of submit 10 films that we, you know, kind of a top 10 that we could talk about it. And I picked Grand Illusion because it is one of my favorite films. Um, you know, it's a French movie. It's an anti-war movie from about World War I. And I just think it's a beautiful movie. And uh, it was actually the first time that that movie had ever played on the channel. You're kidding. No, yeah. So um, I think they liked that I had suggested it because it gave them the opportunity to actually um, go through the uh, process of getting it for the channel. Because, you know, they have certain movies in their catalog and then sometimes they get things that are kind of outside the um, Time Warner catalog.
0: I remember proudly in high school um, (laughs) when we had film class senior year, uh, we watched Casablanca and... um, The part where everyone sang, um, the thing I was like, I stood up and I was like, "This is just a rip off of Grand Illusion."
1: (laughs) I mean, it's definitely inspired.
0: (laughs) Inspired. uh, As a teenager, I was just looking for who did it first, and you can only—that's how originality works. That's—it's never repeated.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's amazing. Actually, if you do have a chance to watch that movie, then you'll see so many things. um, You know. That uh, in later classics like Casablanca, that were really uh, inspired, we'll say, <laughs> by *Great Illusion*. Plus,
0: it's just such a great—it's just got such a great wisdom to it. It's just such yeah. a uh, humanist movie. It's one of those—it's one of those like founding movies that doesn't judge its characters, especially in a very volatile situation. In a yeah, I and mean, I mean,
1: it's showing people on both sides of the war and bringing humanity to both sides. Um, yeah, that's why it's—I mean, it's not only. Um, beautiful to look at but has a beautiful heart to it too
0: i guess are you a renoir fan, Renmoid fan in, in general
1: uh yeah i mean i haven't seen all his films that, that he i don't think he made that many but um i've seen rules of the game and i liked it but um i prefer grand illusion and um i also seen a movie that he made in india um called the river i believe which is that's actually a scorsese really favorite isn't it um, maybe uh, I know it was I, I think that might be one of the ones that his uh, foundation recently kind of restored that sounds um, right which is a, it's a beautiful it's in color which uh, his other the other two were in black and white and so uh, that's a, yeah that's also a very beautiful movie
0: yeah Grand Illusion was a big Orson Welles influence too it was like Stagecoach and that were like the two movies he would take to his grave or something like that around the time he was making <laughs> Sis, and Ga- Sis and Kane yeah. Um so for this new format <laughs> we're, we're we're doing two weeks each and we're trading picks and and we're allowing a broad version of it and you decided do you want to go ahead and introduce the, your pick?
1: Well, you know, you said that you would maybe like to talk about a classic movie since that, like I've just been talking about how much I, you know, love uh, classic movies. And so I picked one of my favorite actresses from that era, uh, the 40s, uh, is Teresa Wright, who, um, you know, a lot of people will have seen in The Best Years of Our Lives. Hopefully you've seen these movies. If you, if you haven't, you should check them out. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt, the Hitchcock movie, she's the star of. Are probably her two best known roles, but she's actually she had quite a good run at the beginning of her career, which we can talk about later. And then I also recommended to you uh, a film from 1952 called *The Steel Trap*.
0: That was the one I just watched last night, and I have—we <laughs> uh, don't have the, the visual, but I have a page full of notes on. <laughs> good. Uh,
1: I, I was yeah. very
0: intrigued by this pick. <laughs> I, 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 why did you pick this one? Just because.
1: Well, well, I knew that you had seen. I, you know, I didn't really know how you wanted to do the conversation, but I knew you had seen some of her other movies, and you, you I've, know, you know I, I can definitely I, talk about those. But I thought this Steel Trap is kind of a smaller movie that I don't think a lot of people have seen. it no. plays on plays on TCM. That's where I saw it. But um, okay. it's, but uh, it is streaming, and it's on DVD, or you can rent it on streaming, and it's on. Yeah, DVD. I watched
0: it on Prime. Or it's not on so, Prime, I watch it on Amazon. But So what was your first viewing like on TCM?
1: So, yeah, so I'll just say a little bit about the movie. It is kind of a, it's a suspense movie. It's kind of a bank caper uh, about a, a man who works at a bank who decides almost on a whim to steal the money from the bake safe and then tries to make an escape and bring his wife along and the man is played by joseph cotton the his wife is played by Teresa wright and then you're watching them kind of every step of the way through uh, them trying to get out of town and uh you know at first she doesn't know and um then kind of You know, I was like the first time I watched it, I was kind of on the edge of my seat the whole time because it it is a
0: very tense movie. It's very (laughs) tense
1: (laughs) because, you know, uh, like I said, it's almost it's not really clear how much he's actually planned this out too much. And so almost immediately (laughs) everything kind of goes a little bit wrong from, you know, how his your smooth ideal uh, you know plan would go and so everything starts to go wrong And so the whole time you're just kind of like pulling on your hair biting your nails thinking are, Is they gonna pull this off? Is, okay, are they gonna get through this? Are they gonna get through this? And so um, the first time I saw it and then after I saw it I thought wow, that's a fun suspense movie that I've never seen before and uh, it was interesting watching it again for this and to see that obviously I know what happens but so, I'm kind of, you know, you get to kind of sit back a little bit, relax a little bit, because you know how things are going to turn out. But there was still that, like, oh God, what, oh no, like, it, but it's almost five o'clock. Are they going to get to the office? You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. All right. So, as we mentioned, <laughs> or you and I talked about before we started recording, I got, um, uh, there's a book about Teresa Wright that just came out four years ago, and mm-hmm. I got it from our great Evansville Vanderburgh <laughs> Public Library, five star library, and <laughs> but I was only able to skim through it really fast. Um, but Teresa Wright was actually pretty dismissive of this movie. <laughs> she um, yeah. she had a so she has this weird uh, story where. I I guess, I don't know if we want to go into it now or later, but basically the first three movies she was in, she was nominated for an Oscar.
1: Yeah, and I believe she's the only person that has ever kind of achieved that uh, claim to fame. Her very first three movies uh, she got uh, were The Little Foxes, where she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and then Mrs. Miniver, which was another supporting actress nominated. That's the only one
0: of these I've seen.
1: And pride of the yankees uh she got nominated for best actress and actually mrs minifer and pride of the yankees were uh eligible in the same year so mm. in one year she was nominated in both categories
0: and two of those are william wyler movies well as lo- as is best of our life best years of our lives yes
1: yeah and he i think um yeah he you know she was an actress that he enjoyed working okay. with um, but yeah, like, so those are her first three movies out of the gate. And then she makes after part of the Yankees shadow of a doubt in 1943 and, and
0: Hitchcock, then, Hitchcock like a Hitchcock it movie.
1: Yeah. And Hitchcock liked her too. And although they didn't work together again, but then, uh, and then best years of our lives is just, a, a couple years after that. And I mean, that's like this amazing run of just like really great movies right, uh, right out the gate. I don't know that that's possible anymore these days, because um, back then with the studio system, you know, you were getting kind of these hand picked projects. Well the,
0: <laughs> well, the other crazy thing was, I don't remember when she started, but um, with her contract with Samuel Goldwyn, but she was under <laughs> contract with him. I want to say it was before Shadow of a Doubt. I know. Like, It was, yeah,
1: it was when she first, her first movie, so. Okay, okay, so she was all the way through the 40s.
0: Well, the crazy thing, some of this is on Wikipedia, some of this is in the book. Basically, at the end of the 40s, either her first or second child, she was getting sick with the child, and she didn't want to do publicity. Mm -hmm. And I guess she ran afoul of Goldwyn at some point already, but when she, she did, actually did some publicity, but she didn't do the full amount, And Goldwyn just threw the gauntlet down and fired her uh, without just right away. And Mm -hmm. what was fascinating, I didn't realize, and putting two and two together is you hear a lot of studio contract um, for actors and actresses in the 40s. And they almost all seemed to end around 48. And the book points out that that was when the Paramount uh, decree came came along and there was suddenly a fear that actors weren't going to have consistent as much work. So these contracts died out. And then you have a few years later, Jimmy Stewart has his contract with Harvey where he gets profit participation and it changes the way actors are paid for movies pretty thoroughly.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I think that was kind of also in that era was when Olivia de Havilland had her lawsuit against uh, Warner brothers, which also, changed the fact that um, they couldn't kind of lock people into contracts for um, as long amount of time.
0: That was like a California state law thing, wasn't it?
1: Um, I mean, I'm not a legal expert. <laughs> I don't know all the details, but it was a uh, it was. I, just so, remember, like, I remember it was fascinating because yeah. it was
0: like a labor law thing. They Yeah, pointed yeah out exactly. That, like, it
1: was a labor ca- law thing.
0: California labor law for everyone else could only go five years, but these studio contracts were seven years and things like that.
1: Yeah, and they would, uh, if you weren't working, they would kind of, like, put pause on the contract, and then, so they could kind of string you along for much longer than even the period in the contract. So, yeah, the studio contracts weren't so great well the
0: thing that teresa wright seemed to be more objecting to she was doing she came from new york and doing uh stage work in new york and i guess she was inconsistently doing it she was an early participant in the the la jolla playhouse
1: oh well you know i actually worked there when i lived in san diego so really
0: uh, really i didn't know that Well, they had this list on there of some early actors who were there and they would do this the summer around 49 or 50, like they would do like a play a week with like a week of rehearsal and they had Olivia de Havilland, Charlton Heston. I mean, it was a really cool list of people they were having early on when they first formed. Uh, and, yeah, I um, know uh,
1: Gregory Peck was one of the yeah. uh, founders and Dorothy McGuire, I believe, someone else. I can't remember. But yeah, so a lot of these like big Hollywood people.
0: Around the time she was getting fired, she was doing this, and she was. I want to say she was going back to New York. She maybe started doing her first TV jobs, but um, she objected to the publicity part of it. And I get, Mm -hmm. I I, reading through the all the extra like keep your weight at a certain things, all these extra Mm -hmm. little. You know, I don't know if there was. I doubt there was a morals clause with her because her whole thing was that she was always above board, but.
1: Well, one of the interesting things about her contract was, um, you know, she did have a stipulation that she would be able to go back and do uh, work on the stage at least once a year. But the one thing that was really unique was um, she had a clause in there that said that she wouldn't do those sort of cheesy photo shoots. that a lot of the contract stars had to do. And so the exact text that I've seen a few places, just to give you an example, it kind of lists a bunch of different scenarios, but it says like, Teresa Wright shall not be required to pose for photographs in a bathing suit unless she is in the water. Uh, Nor may she pose in any of the following situations, in shorts, playing with a cocker spaniel, digging in a garden, whipping up a meal, looking insinuatingly at a turkey for Thanksgiving. So there's just all these very
0: specific things. You know those turkeys. They they just, they seem (laughs) too provocative.
1: You know, twinkling on prop snow in a skiing outfit while a fan blows her scarf. So she, like, had, you know, right away was saying, like, I'm not going to do this, you know, these cheesecake photos. Uh, Don't make me pose in bunny ears for an Easter photograph that has nothing to do with a movie. And, I mean, you know, if you look through, like, the archives or whatever from the studios there are these kind of random photos of you know the starlets of the time just kind of posing that they would give away as you know publicity photos and she just wasn't having it
0: (laughs) Well, what's funny to me is getting back to the movie is – and I watched Best Years of Our Lives, rewatched it in prep. I watched a little bit of Pride of the Yankees, and all these movies were movies – it's from the 40s. You expect that. I'm trying not to look at it at a modern lens, and it's also – especially with Best Years of Our Lives, the whole movie is about the men coming back to – a country that had lost the majority of its men. So it's going to be a man-based movie. But all three of these roles are just her, like, hanging around guys being like, are you okay? (laughs)
1: Because
0: even her comment on Steel Trap, her very dismissive comment of it was that she spent the entire movie counting how much money Joseph Cotton had spent the entire movie (laughs) and occasionally saying, you spent... $30? $30? You're spent $50?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that maybe the roles, yeah, they're not as uh, well written as they could have been, let's say but I think that she as an actress has uh, is bringing, you know interesting things to those roles, even when they are, you know I mean, I, I do like her role in Best Years of Our Lives, I think that is an interesting I, one
0: I didn't mean um, to be dismissive of that yeah, one as yeah. much, but...
1: Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of actresses at the time in the 40s, a lot of it is like, well, you're the wife or you're the girlfriend, and it's like reacting to whatever your your man is doing.
0: And times have changed.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I guess I wanted to ask you a little more in depth about what particularly right's appeal to you was as an actress
1: okay so i think i first saw Teresa Wright maybe in shadow of a doubt maybe it was best years of our lives maybe even the little foxes but one of those early movies and i think i responded right away to the fact that she just seemed kind of unique uh for actresses at the time and that she seemed very genuine and had that sort of appeal of a real person and even though you know the writing of movies isn't necessarily, well, these aren't like the things that a real person would say, or, you know, I think she feels like a person who you would be the girl next door. She does have Mm -hmm. that very um, sort of unaffected kind of uh, presence on screen. And that's something that people, you know, said at the time, it's something that people have said about her since then that, uh, she just felt like a, a person kind of off the street who, you know, was really going through these situations mm. and sometime. And, you know, at that time, especially at, you know, studios like MGM, they were very in, much into the glamor of movie stars. And, uh, the actresses had to be very made up and looking glamorous and taking those publicity shots with the you know, on skis. And, uh, that just wasn't her image. And, uh,
0: and I she just saw that
1: kind of uh, yeah. I, I just found it very appealing.
0: I saw uh, I reread um, her what little mentions was there of her in Mark Harris's Five Came Back, the book about mm. um, the five directors that went over to World War II, including William Wyler. And they pointed out that you know Wyler when he came, and he came back from the war, he was you know not interested in doing anything. He, like he, he was a more realist based filmmaker after he came back, and one of the things he did with um teresa wright in best years of her lives was he gave her a very limited amount of money and said you have to buy your cost you, you you're buying your costumes and they have oh, to look like real costumes
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah that's interesting and one of the dresses she wears in that movie is so memorable to me i i think it's a really great dress so that's good on her um i think it's one that she wears when she goes out on a the double date with Dana Andrews and his wife, I think it has kind of some uh, detailing, like Grecian almost, uh, detailing around the bodice. and uh, Yeah, I, I like that one. That's so the one they take her. the picture of? I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and one thing, yeah, about her role in Best Years of Our Lives that I think she brings to a lot of her roles is she does have that sweet girl kind of image, but she also has this underlying tenacity of, you know, when she has to get something done you know she's someone you can who's gonna do it and you know like the scene in best years of our lives where she decides you know she just tells her family i'm gonna break up that marriage yeah because it's a is... bad marriage and uh i'm gonna you know i'm getting into this you know
0: can you imagine <laughs> telling your parents i'm gonna break up your friend's marriage like... i
1: mean it's it's crazy it's audacious but yeah. uh you know when i'm watching it and i'm like yeah do it <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh re that movie again not related to teresa wright but i always forget the how much the um airplane sequence at the end always kills me
1: oh when dana andrews is going through the kind of airplane graveyard
0: the and it, and i forgot forgotten about it but the his parents reading um his war accommodations going into it oh my just, god
1: yeah yeah i mean i'm gonna cry
0: yeah. just thinking about it <laughs>
1: That movie gets me just about every time, and I've seen it a few times. I have it on DVD now, but um, you know, I can't not get uh, emotionally invested,
0: yeah. Um, so I, I haven't, so let's, let's maybe get back to Steel Trap, um, just to get through my page of notes. Uh, <laughs> well, the craziest thing is, have you not to take away from writing in, but are you familiar with Andrew L. Stone, the writer director?
1: So I did look into Mr. Stone's directing career. Uh, it was a very okay. interesting. Uh, it was a roller coaster ride there. Uh, definitely yeah. a journey, a journeyman director, and it seemed like in this period in the '50s, he was in kind of this groove of like suspense crime movies, where several, uh, you know, kind of almost B picture crime movies
0: the craziest thing i noted looking into his imdb is that whenever um writer directors first started taking precedence in hollywood people always cited preston sturges and john houston in the early 40s and you look at his imdb he predates them writing and directing and producing these movies beforehand and he had a pretty steady run making these movies going all the way into the 60s uh he got oh
1: the end of his career is wild because then in the seventies he makes two epic musical flops that basically like help kill the big musical. <laughs>
0: I, I didn't che- I didn't check into this. What? what... So in nineteen
1: seventy he made the Song of Norway.
0: With, no, nothing. Which you no. you're,
1: so you're not familiar with the uh, musical biopic of Grieg. Norwegian uh, composer Edvard Grieg uh, starring Florence Henderson not as Grieg but as (laughs) the main female Mrs. Brady yes and this would have been when Brady Bunch was on TV so um, yeah so the Song of Norway and then the next one was called The Great Waltz in 1972 which was a remake of a 1938 musical of the same name. They just, I guess, were like, "Let's try this again."
0: So that's where the <laughs> band and Scorsese got their idea of being like, "No more waltzes. We're doing the no last Waltz. We're
1: doing the last one." Let's, yeah. So uh, let's quit this. We're cutting
0: those off. <laughs> he well, he had one um screenwriting no- um, Oscar nomination in the middle of the yes. 50s, but but there's something about the tone of when I was just looking at the synopses of these, where it was somewhere between like. Samuel Fuller and Ed Wood where he was like get <laughs> he was getting these yeah. movies made and he was making them kind of down and dirty and Steel Trap Steel Trap kind of fits that. One of the coolest mm-hmm. most notable things about Steel Trap is that there's only one set in the entire movie. The rest of it's all location shooting, and it shows. And it's not just, like, cheap B-movie L.A. shooting. They shoot in, in New Orleans, too.
1: Yes, and that's one of the things I love about it. Uh, I really enjoyed it this second time watching it. I was able to appreciate, like, hey, wait a minute. They're actually in New Orleans right now. <laughs> and it's uh it's cool to see like nineteen fifties New Orleans.
0: You you get to the point where they're in New Orleans and they have a stock shot of a plane landing and you're like, Oh, I we're gonna see an interior with a short ceiling and <laughs> no, they walk out of a New Orleans or okay, they walk out <laughs> of an airport that has a stone building and says New Orleans airport. But then but that's they go
1: the real airport.
0: But then they go to the quarter too. <laughs> And like yeah. they actually spend time. Yeah, they go to some pretty memorable sites too.
1: Yeah, it w- it was it was kind of a funny uh thought when they their plane lands and then you see Joseph Cotton walking in the
0: front door of the airport. <laughs>
1: I'm like did they did they let you out at the curb? <laughs>
0: um I know specifically with the LA stuff. I was I I also went back down the list of movies that is in the uh, um, that great documentary, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Yeah. It's not in there. And I was like, oh, that, that's an omission. That's a, yeah. deli- that's a bad, because yeah. this is a great early 50s downtown LA movie too.
1: Yeah. And they have the scenes at uh, Joseph Cotton's bank, which is one of these like old, beautiful banks.
0: There's this crazy scene with the vault. The boss at the, be- um, it's like one of the second or third scenes in where he's got this elevated office near the ceiling and the ceiling is gorgeous looking
1: (laughs) i also loved the uh the vault room which i I kind of has that great
0: mirror the mirrored
1: wall so they have (laughs) they have
0: that one shot where they shoot straight into the mirror yes oh so cool
1: yes yeah and and uh just to explain so from the doorway looking into the vault there's a safe where they're keeping the cash but the side where the lock is doesn't face the door it faces to a mirror that's on the back wall and so as joseph cotton is crouching there to open the cash box you can see him in full view reflected in the mirror but uh, he can't really see if anyone's coming
0: <laughs> it's yeah the um well because what's the other thing about the tension is that especially for like the first half hour it feels like they're going to bring this tension out of really one main location. They go home, mm. but for the most part... And, like, he, he takes the train home, but for the most cool. part, it just feels like the bank, and then it, the movie kind of opens up a little. They go to a hotel, and then they get to the airport. And, and I mean, it's still interiors, but it's, yeah. like, especially for a movie that's shot on location, like, it, 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 it was one of those used-its-beam movie, if it was-beam movie. It's a Fox movie, right? But if it used its B movie settings, it's still using them for the best effect. Like, it really... It really uses that storytelling idea of you want to put your characters in the situation they least want to be in. And so yeah. like Cotton keeps catching himself in a lie. And one of the most fascinating mm-hmm. things I found about his casting was that I don't want to cast him to play anxious, which is where I don't go for Joseph Cotton, but like yeah. he's playing anxious or he's playing guilty or he's playing an inconsistently good liar cuz sometimes like he lies so smoothly. And then sometimes yeah. he's just like What do you mean, money in my suitcase?
1: (laughs) Well, one thing that's interesting about the casting too is that uh, Joseph Cotton and Teresa Wright had already starred together in Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, um, about a decade earlier.
0: Did you played his niece? (laughs) Did you? I. Watching this, I made a point of pointing out what their age difference is just because that's a more modern trope of pointing out mm-hmm. a husband, wife, how old they are. Cotton at this point is forty seven and Teresa Wright is thirty-four. Yeah. But then you gotta subtract um nine years before them to go to yeah. shadow of a doubt. And but yeah.
1: she was his niece, so No, 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 <laughs> no, weren't. no. I, that's my point, is just yeah.
0: you're just adding nine years to that and like, oh marriage.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I guess 13 years isn't that big of a difference <laughs> in movies.
0: <laughs> well, especially 40s movies there, too. Are you a fan of the Fritz Lang movie, The Big Heat?
1: You know, I haven't seen that movie.
0: This reminds me a lot of, especially because this was di- or um. um um, I I saw it as classified as a noir, and there's a certain batch of fifties noir that really has to like go into d- suburbia and domestic levels. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like the Cohens have kind of milked a little bit of that in modern times mm-hmm. that influence. And Big Heat only really has it for like the first twenty minutes, half hour. But this also has that where it's just like post-war these comfortable homes these box houses are are popping up and there's this existential crisis of whether like we should be happy about this and should i should i love this domestication or should i rob my bank and steal a million dollars
1: well i mean and that's kind of how it opens with joseph cotton kind of going through his daily routine and you get that that's sort of what gives him not the idea but he gets the idea like hey it would be easy to rob my bank and maybe all of this day-to-day you know routine that domestic you know routine that I'm in maybe I don't want that and like what if I did something like this midlife crisis almost of just yeah. like what if I did what if I just blew up my life but he does want to take his wife and his daughter with him What well, would he thinks through yeah, that at least not that he's is, gonna leave them behind although and, there's the
0: weirdness with the daughter but yeah that's a, right. That is a very valid point. I just it's fascinating that that's where film noir was at, where it was just like we need to accept the nuclear family on top of this darkness <laughs> and shadow, too.
1: Well, and I think to your point about it being noir, I think if it had a darker ending that it would be unquestionably a noir movie, but I think the ending almost brings it
0: Do we out are we talking about back. the ending
1: now? Well, so I'm I'm waiting for, you're the host, so I'm waiting for you to say when we can give some
0: spoilers here. There's so. Oh, we're, we've, we lost <laughs> we, spoilers. We've kind of spoiled. Time, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a bunch of other things I want to go into the movie, but the ending, yeah, no. like, you know, you, it's okay, the big point about the ending I felt was, I don't mean to be someone who watches a movie with when it was made in the back of my head, but I the tension I had watching the movie was I was trying to figure out where is the brain code at right now? You know, and there's the clause in the brain code that says you, um, if someone commits a crime, they cannot get away with it. And I was like, it, where, where can can he get away with it or not?
1: Yeah, and you know, I was looking at, I was watching the runtime as it was going through um, to see kind of where, and it's funny how like it takes a long time. You see him go through, you see him take the money, you see him. There's a lot of. he goes through a lot of trouble trying to get their passports and then they've got to get to the airport and then they, their flight's delayed and there's all kinds of like delays, delays along the way. And you're thinking, are they even ever going to get out of Los Angeles? And then are they ever going to get to Brazil? Which is kind of their final, his final goal. And then it was like the last 20 minutes of the movie is when he decides to, he's, stops trying to go to brazil or there's kind of like a stopping point where he gets caught by a customs person who questions the fact that his suitcase weighs 115 pounds which made me laugh throughout the movie (laughs) that he was running around carrying a 115 pound suitcase and they look in the suitcase and see all the cash and he basically gets confronted by a customs person about all the cash doesn't have a very good uh, you know, explanation for it. And then his wife finally knows the whole uh, deal.
0: We're going to get to how long it <laughs> took Teresa Wright to like actually stop <laughs> frowning and say something and have a confrontation. But one, the thing, whenever they kept having these shots of, first off, there was, it was a, he had to check the flight. It, like it, there was like, it was like a, They went to Amarillo first, then they went to New Orleans, and then they were going to Brazil. So the luggage got back. Yes, this 115-pound suitcase, and then they had a million dollars, (laughs) and they had these shots of it being dragged across uh, the airport. And all I kept thinking of is the end of the killing, the Kubrick movie. Where uh-huh. like I just kept thinking that latch is gonna stick. That latch has to stick. It can't. It can't not like blow open and blow the money everywhere, right? <laughs> right. That know, was that's of the tension. That's part attention. Yeah, for sure. Really...
1: <laughs> and so yeah, so it's like twenty minutes to go, and he gets finally found out, um, in several ways. Uh, he gets confronted. Although and his
0: then... <laughs> bu- his boss is his boss is just like I found him out. Let's play some cards. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a <laughs> colleague from, well, it's not his boss, His it's boss. a colleague yeah, at sorry. the bank who goes over to his house where the um, mother-in-law is taking care of their daughter because they decided not to bring the daughter along. And uh, the daughter, of course, you know, she's a little girl. She spills the beans that they're going to Brazil, and then the mother-in-law says, you know, oh, it's a bank business, isn't it? And that makes his <laughs> colleagues suspicious because he's like, well, then I should be in charge of that. What, blah, blah. He starts asking questions. And
0: the mother the whole time is just like, well, it was bank business. I'm supposed to be able to talk about that. He works at the bank. You work at the bank, right? Yeah,
1: like that was fine, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, he, so he goes home. But, you know, it's the 50s and it's this great thing of this is before cell phones, so he can't just call up the bank manager, yeah, the boss, true. who because of course he is. It's Sunday and he's out golfing. So. Which they, they
0: firmly plant <laughs> early on in the movie that yes, he's going golfing. Yes.
1: They did plant that seed, and that was another tension point. You know, several times along the way, that's what was so great is first you get the scene where Joseph Cotton is waiting for his boss to leave, and he's talking on the phone about his golf. Game and he's just like checking his watch, like this guy needs to get out of here so I yeah. can steal the money. Yeah. And then later they can't reach the boss to uh, verify any of the stories he's telling because he's playing golf. <laughs> but yeah, so then he finally gets find out, found out, and then it's like basically his wife decides to go back to California. They're in New Orleans. Well, his wife goes back.
0: Let's talk about the confrontation scene because okay. the whole thing is like. I was watching this. I agree with you. There's a certain amount of, um, to to use the 40s jargon, moxie to Teresa Wright's uh, general performances. But here, like, she goes a long time just, like, with some very troublesome signs and just going along with it until she finally, she overhears him give a fake name to a hotel clerk, and she's like, I have to say something. And... The scene they have in there, again, I'm thinking post-war noir existentialism, and the quote he gives is something along like, um, Cotton says, when he finally says something to her. he's like, there's only so many days, so many hours, so many minutes, and we have to cram in all the happiness we can get away with. And, <laughs> and I was flashed back a little bit on that really cool scene in Shadow of a Doubt where he starts cruelly talking about killing widows and mm-hmm. just how like you got to take what you can get when you can get it. And mm-hmm. it's not as well written of a scene as mm-hmm. the shadow of a doubt scene. It's a little clunky, but at the same time he gets both these actors a little bit of room to do something. And r- this is where right comes out basically.
1: Yeah. And, and I, in that confrontation, one thing that one uh, thing I liked was um, she, you know, she's been with him on this journey. She didn't know, what was really going on. And now she's had suspicions along the way, but now she knows he stole the money from the bank. He's admitted it. And it's, he's trying to like, you know, explain his plan. We can live in Brazil, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that. This is wrong. I'm leaving, I'm going back home. And he's like, how can you leave me? You know, how can you leave me like this? And she says, no, you're the one walking out because he chose to do this scheme. He's mm-hmm. the one leaving their family and choosing to go, you know, against the law. and uh, But he tries to, like, make it like she's abandoning him. And she's like, that's not what's happening here.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, especially because, uh, like, yeah. he starts the film off saying, I've never lied to my wife. And then he mm-hmm. just lies to her for the next <laughs> hour and 20 minutes.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, you think – you know, I'm married and I think like I trust my husband and if he told me that, you know, he was going somewhere for this trip, why would I, I wouldn't assume that he was actually robbing his business or something. You know, I wouldn't assume something crazy. I'd assume like, oh, this seems a little bit uh, different or unusual, but you even know, I'll go along with it. and even but, if it- you know. He just starts
0: snapping at stewardesses.
1: Well, I mean, and she does talk to him. She's, I mean, along the way, she does, you know, she's basically having to react to her husband's increasingly frantic, panicked behavior and trying to rationalize it the whole time. Her role, I think, in the movie is that she has to be an obstacle because he has to you know, he has all these obstacles placed in his way. And she's one of them in that he's not, She's trying to go about her life in the way that they always have been. Like, for example, leaving the daughter at home. He wants Mm -hmm. to bring the daughter with them to make it kind of a clean escape. And she's like, no, no, she's little. She's never, I mean, they've never been on a plane. Like, let's leave her at home uh, this time
0: and his old it's justifications. We'll send for her later.
1: Yeah, I- and so then, and so like she and she's just being a normal person. Or like along the way, when um, they can't get the passports in time or they miss a flight, she just says well, can't we get the next flight? Can't, you know, I guess we'll just have to, you know, wait until Monday or something. And he, you know, in his his plan, they have to get there this weekend. And so he has to come up with ways to, you know, kind of push aside any of her rationalizations of what, you know, normal people would do
0: <laughs> I won't I won't lie there was one moment when she contradicted him on a plane and I thought of that scene in airplane where the wife is just like Jim never drinks a second cup of coffee at home like that, <laughs> that was the level of like in ineff- ineffectual yeah. nagging or internal nagging but not saying anything not directly addressing what was happening that was happening until the until the hotel scene. Then the hotel yeah. scene, like it's all like she, she throws it down at the at the hotel scene.
1: Yeah, and um, yeah. So one thing I did write down is that you know she has to kind of be in his way and reacting to his behavior, but I don't think she ever does it in a way that is annoying. Um, yeah, the way that I'll, I'll sometimes give that. I'll give you that. like in a movie like this, the the, the wife or woman. girlfriend. Yeah, come, and. I, I was trying to think of a good example that uh, what I could think of was uh, in Pulp Fiction, Butch's girlfriend, Bruce Willis's girlfriend, Fabian, uh, who is supposed to like help him and is just like, obviously not really holding up her end of yeah. things, like not doing things right. It
0: like, is a common, forget- it was a common actress yeah. complaint that we're just given the shrill obstacle. We're, we're yeah. the, uh, we're, we're the um, obstacle to the man's, um, dreams of freedom
1: yeah <laughs> and you know he in at least to its credit he always wanted to bring the family along it wasn't like me getting away from them they were always part of it but uh yeah <laughs> she's like no uh i don't think being a you know fugitives from the law is really where yeah. i want to take my life Um, But I did say to her credit, uh, at the end, she does smooth things over with the bank colleague. Mm. (laughs) And she's very
0: smooth when she did it. She was very smooth in that phone call.
1: (laughs) Um, So, you know, uh, I I, I, I don't know exactly what she said, but uh, she did kind of smooth things over with him. And uh, so then in the after she leaves to go back home, then you're left with wondering, well, is he going to keep going forward or is he going to go back and return the money? But he has to get the money there by Monday morning before the bank opens. And it's literally like the last three minutes of the movie it, is him like, yeah. you know, sweatily trying to get back into the bank and get the money in the vault.
0: And then it has the bookended, um, his day to day going home ritual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that ending is something that is (laughs) like, I I don't know if that's just like a moment in time that this that movie could get away with a movie uh, ending like that, where, like, again, I keep making the brain code jokes, but it's like post that like, let's put the genie back in the bottle. Really? That's how the movie ends.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I did your midlife crisis is over. Yeah, throughout the movie, you know, Joseph Cotton is trying to make people kind of bend to what he wants and uh, get away with things. And I just wrote down like, I'm a middle class white man. Do what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Especially glaring with the uh, episode surrounding their passports because they need to get like, yes. Like, uh, extra, you know, quick passports. He needs to get them within a couple days. And they have to pick them up at the office or get them stamped at the Brazilian consulate or something. Um, and, and he drags close. out
0: the Brazilian consulate operator out of on a Friday night, like, come back here right away. Yeah, I
1: mean, he's dragging people out, you know, to open up the office because he couldn't get there before they closed. And then bef- finally, like, someone's actually trying to help him. There's like a like a, a doorman or something Yeah, yeah, At the yeah. office. There the elevator
0: operator, yeah. Yeah,
1: he's, you know, getting someone to come open the office, but he's so frantic, he can't wait. So he breaks the window, breaks into the office, steals his passports, and then is leaving when a guard shows up yeah. and is like, okay, I'm going to have to arrest you because you broke into this office. And he basically talks his way out of it. And then when an employee from the consulate shows up, and the uh, guard is like, well, do you want to do anything about this? And he's, he's like, eh, I guess it's yeah. okay. <laughs> and yeah. he just gives them, like, 50 bucks to fix the window and, that, like, that's, runs away.
0: That's the whole thing. Uh, leading up to the, like, t- uh, ticking clock of getting the passports in time, he just keeps dropping pe- money to people. He's just like... Here's $50. If you want, you're want, you not willing to help me, well, here's $100. Which yeah. goes back to Teresa Wright's point of like, why are you spending this much money bribing an elevator operator? Yes.
1: Or like when they're in the cab on the way to the airport and they don't think they'll get there in time. And he's like, mm. you know, mm-hmm. step on it. Here's an extra 30 bucks or mm. something. And she's, you know, just you can see on her face, she's getting uh, concerned. Uh, But yeah, like you said, she's not saying anything but you can tell this is concerning behavior.
0: I want to give uh, Dimitri Tjomkin credit he's there's a definite MVP of this movie and the thing is like there's also a B movie feeling where like he's utilized a lot at the beginning to ratchet up the tension then he his the score disappears for a long period of time and then it comes back in a little at the end
1: yeah um I mean
0: yeah you know, he's great <laughs> yeah um cotton uh Co- I have trouble following Cotton a little outside of the stuff he's done in relation to Orson Welles. Um, before this, he did a Marilyn Monroe movie, Niagara, which I have never seen. And then he did after this, I don't know straight after this, but Andrew L. Stone's next movie was another mm-hmm. crime movie that Cotton was in with that, too.
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think at this point in his career, he was uh, no longer, you know, a uh, top leading man. He was getting older. Uh, you know, he's in his late well, 40s. Both- and his face definitely showed mm. age. Yeah, spe-
0: especially if you go back and look at Shadow of a Doubt. I mean, 10 years is going to do that to anybody's face. But yeah. both both him and Wright were about to start going into TV after this.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of a big boom in those sort of playhouse tv shows where they would do little shortened versions of popular movies or mm. plays and they both did a lot of those mm. um and, i mean a lot of hollywood people went into tv doing that um just because it was almost like being um in the theater mm. getting to do different uh, great little pieces uh and performing live a
0: lot of the time i did read a really cool quote where wright said she learned a lot from tv acting for the live performance scene, or acting in general just being live mm. tv like so it was actually a challenging thing for her and and rewarding but the thing with Teresa wright though um, like i don't i don't know if this is overall in the biography it's just she started out high and like just you know down from there
1: (laughs) well you know I think she always preferred acting on the stage like movies wasn't you know her big goal she was someone that enjoyed acting and always wanted to be acting but she got the opportunity to be in movies and made some really great ones but she wasn't ever you know wedded to the idea of being a movie star and I think that shows in her career, she still kept making, mo- I mean, she would appear, she appeared a lot of TV through the 50s, 60s, and in through the 80s, you know, guest appearances on things. And then she even made a few movies. She was Her last movie was The Rainmaker, the Francis Ford Coppola movie, when, you know, she was um, quite elderly, but, <laughs> uh, you know, she still kept kept making
0: movies back to going back to our archers episode i did with ted i kept thinking okay. about how um uh, the the lead actress in black narcissus um she was. He, ted pointed out she was used in saving private ryan and he pointed out that a lot of the movie brats would use a lot of their favorite actresses from the 40s mm. in these roles where they're a grandmother basically but yeah. they would bring them back for these movies in the 90s and the odds too
1: yeah, uh, that is something that you notice when you uh, look at, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Spielberg bringing in Audrey Hepburn, convincing Audrey Hepburn to be in uh, Always mm. or something like that. Um, another, uh, another great place to see um, classic movie actors is actually Murder, She Wrote, because, uh, <laughs> you know, Angela Lansbury came mm. from, you know, mm. MGM in the classic era being in movies, and she brought in all her friends. Uh, to be a uh, little guest spots in, you know, the murder of the week. And the, it's it's kind of awesome to see, you know, these faces you recognize from classic movies show the up. The crazier and...
0: <laughs> uh, show I see keep popping up at the end of Great Actors IMDb's is The Love Boat.
1: Well, yeah, then you had The Love Boat too because it was a rotating, you know, cast mm-hmm. every week.
0: <laughs> yeah. um, so did you, I guess for any final thoughts about Teresa Wright is there I mean we, we talked about the the big movies we we, we kind of left a gap after best years of our lives going into this movie or at least at the very least to the end of her Samuel Goldwyn contract was there mm-hmm. any other movies you wanted to really that of hers that you love that you wanted to mention
1: and no particular favorites coming, you know, in that period. Uh, that first, you know, the 40s, the first half of the 40s is really, you know, strong. Um, she also made a movie called Casanova Brown with Gary Cooper in that period. Uh, one of the movies she made in 1950 that was actually a prestige movie is called The Men. And it was actually Marlon Brando's first movie.
0: I, I forgot to mention that.
1: Yeah. And so she actually played the love interest, I believe, of Marlon Brando in that movie. And it's interesting that um, she was kind of known as being sort of that uh, very, you know, uh, unvarnished, uh, you know, unaffected kind of style of acting. And that's what, you know, Brando and the actor studio kind of people would bring in later is that almost the extreme of that.
0: Well, one of the fascinating things when she quit Goldwyn was she made a point of saying, like, we don't need to be paid this much money to do these movies. So she was went from being this very high-paid Goldwyn actor to taking very little money. And she was in the book, they talk a lot about her getting shortchanged on the men and getting – they were originally going to yeah. do a Favored Nations so where everyone got the same amount and then she got cut off and then – every movie she did after that point, she was saying that was the bracket of her, of her quote was that point was that much lower. And I don't know. She was still doing the work. So there's that, but
1: yeah, I did see a comment, a quote from her basically saying like, you know, I was, thought I was standing up for, you know, the ideals or whatever, um, but I just ended up say, basically telling everyone that I'd work for much cheaper <laughs> <laughs> and bringing down my, my quote. So kind of worked against her in that way.
0: Uh, one of the last questions I want to ask you about, uh, to end on a very <laughs> superficial and sexist question, <laughs> she's blonde in the movie. Teresa Wright's never yeah. blonde.
1: Yeah, it's weird, huh? Yeah, uh, I, it is weird. Uh, you know, she's known as a brunette, and I think she—I think she looks better as a brunette. But uh, <laughs> seeing the blonde is a little odd. Well, it,
0: it's weird because it gives her a sense of—I um, uh, don't know if I'm just thinking of Marilyn Monroe or what the type was at the time, but it was just like more of a common the the Hollywood idea of an ingenue at the time. Because this movie also the book mentions like she this was her sexy role because she had a scene where she was in a bath towel <laughs> I
1: mean I did notice that like uh yeah she comes out of the shower wrapped in a towel you see the top of a shoulder <laughs> <Whoa-hoo-hoo-hoo>. <laughs> um yeah yeah I mean she was definitely not cast as uh, you know the again the sexy glamorous one but uh yeah I think I think that's fine I think there's room for everybody uh i wouldn't call this role her her sexy role <laughs> maybe just because it's a noir or kind of noir-ish they think there's got to be some kind of sexy dame she
0: around she has the least conflicted femme fatale i've seen ever <laughs> right.
1: not not fatale whatsoever yeah um i i just i have this quote i wrote down because i read a Bosley Crowther's review in the New York times of the steel trap. And I just thought this was a great quote. Um, It was a positive review, even though, you know, maybe Teresa Wright didn't think it was that good, but (laughs) the Mm -hmm. critic said, uh, it's an entertaining picture. The entertainment, however, being the sort enjoyed by the man who hit himself on the head with a hammer because it felt so good when he stopped and it's like makes you really think about like why do we watch these suspenseful thrillers that kind of bring your heart rate up so much and is it because when it's over you finally feel that relief
0: <laughs> wow um i think i think that's as good as a pepper as we got yeah
1: all right <laughs> I I don't know. Check out the Steel Trap, is what I would say.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Does it periodically appear on TCM? I I,
1: yeah, occasionally. Um, Definitely, if they're ever highlighting like uh, Joseph Cotton, sometimes it shows up. You know. Uh, But it is streaming for a relatively cheap (laughs)
0: price. Okay. Well, um, uh, I guess that's enough for this episode, Uh, Lonnie i'm glad you were able to be on you'll unless um an earthquake or some disaster happens 2020 you know represent uh you don't
1: tempt fate
0: (laughs) knock uh you'll be on next week too so
1: okay well i look forward to finding out what we'll be talking about
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody thanks for listening check in next